Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. It reads like a, a Cold War spy novel. The U.S. is investigating what caused American diplomats in Cuba to experience mysterious symptoms. Strange case of the mysterious hearing loss among some employees at the U.S. Embassy. The weapon is unlike anything we are used to hearing about. It's the 9th of August, 2017. News breaks that American diplomats in Havana, Cuba, have been falling ill. It is a cause of uh, great concern for us. It's caused a variety of physical symptoms in these American citizens who work for the U.S. government. Uh, we take those incidents- For months, a cluster of U.S. State Department employees had been reporting mysterious symptoms of dizziness, an earache, tinnitus, headaches, nausea. And by the time that it becomes public, they've been assessed by medical experts and tested rigorously. But the illness remains a mystery. A day after the first news report, a second report by NBC goes further. A mystery attack, the headline reads. This seems like a horrible mistake on the part of Cuban intelligence. It's either going to be the Cubans or the Russians possibly working together. A good mystery isn't static. It shapeshifts. And so each time that you think that you catch up with it, the story slips through your fingers. And so it was with this mystery illness. It just kept moving to China, to Austria, to Germany, to the gates of the White House itself. Canadian diplomats soon reported symptoms too. Information tonight about how government officials dealt with a mysterious illness that affected 23 Canadian diplomats in Cuba's capital. We were so scared. We didn't know what could they possibly be looking at. The cases keep coming. No one, it seems, is safe. It's spread to the heart of America's government. US Vice President Kamala Harris delayed a trip to Vietnam after two officials there reported mysterious symptoms. A staffer on the team of the CIA director, Bill Burns, fell sick. A CIA official who traveled to India this month is the latest to report symptoms of Havana syndrome. That official was traveling with CIA director William Burns at the time. Many of the victims complained that a sound, a sound that could be piercing or throbbing or grinding, was triggering it all. I don't know when the sound started. Um, I do know that it was for months on end. I had this incredible ringing in my ears, uh, and I knew something was really wrong with me. And I could feel this sound in my head, low humming sound, and it was oscillating. The illness became known as the Havana Syndrome, and it's now thought to be significantly impacting America's ability to operate overseas. 
And so it's a story of espionage, conspiracy and trickery, a story worthy of the world's greatest mystery writer, Agatha Christie, who once wrote for Poirot, the impossible could not have happened, therefore the impossible must be possible in spite of appearances. I'm Basha Cummings and you're listening to The Slow Newscast and in this episode, the mystery of the immaculate concussion and whether the impossible might just be possible. Thank you for joining us at this truly historic moment as we prepare to raise the United States flag here at our embassy in Havana, symbolizing the reestablishment of diplomatic relations after 54 years. On the 14th of August 2015, America reopened its embassy in Havana for the first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was a building by Harrison and Abramovitz, the architects who had designed the UN headquarters in New York. And it seemed, briefly, as if 54 years of suspicion and hostility and trade embargoes might finally be over. But even as diplomatic relations resumed, there were tensions. Embassy staff were reportedly under constant surveillance by Cuban intelligence. One intelligence worker faced intrusions in his home his belongings were being tampered with. But then those same staffers began to fall sick. The most ill patients were evacuated from Havana and sent for tests. Many of them, it later turned out, were CIA intelligence officers there undercover as diplomats. And they were examined by two teams of doctors. One led by a blast injury specialist, a man called Dr. Michael Hoffer, and the other by a concussion expert, Douglas H. Smith. And both doctors came to similar conclusions, that this was new, something they hadn't seen before. A brain trauma without any trauma, a concussion without a blow to the head. It was referred to as a complex brain network disorder. The Pentagon, struggling to find answers, put together a team of specialists to investigate the cause of the illness. Now, there's very few people who have been fully briefed on Havana syndrome, but that's where Dr. James Giordano comes in. He's one of them. I'm Dr. James Giordano, I'm a professor at Georgetown University Medical Center. I serve as executive director for the Institute for Biodefense Research, a think tank in the Washington, D.C. area dedicated to exploring those ways that biosciences and technology are being currently, and perhaps in the near future, utilized in those national security, intelligence, and defense agendas. James is, as you'll hear, ferociously clever and unfailingly polite. He's one of the very few people who have ever called me ma'am. And as he spoke, I felt like the guy from the meme with the investigation pinned on the wall and the crazy eyes. I was desperately trying to keep up with what he was telling me and to try and make sense of it. Well, I got into the field called neurosciences about 40 years ago, uh, back in the late 1970s. As you may know, this field, this titular field of neurosciences became a thing up to that point. There had been a number of different approaches to studying the brain, anatomical, pharmacological, physiological, behavioral, but they were really concatenated under this single heading of the neurosciences in the late 1970s. James was in the military for many years, and there, with his neuroscience background, it was his job to look at how biology and chemistry and physics could be used to improve the performance of personnel. 
but it was also his job to research the evolution of weaponry. After I finished my active duty time, late middle 1990s, I continued my research and ongoing work and did a number of, of projects on a consulting scale and contractual scale with a number of different branches of the Department of Defense and Homeland Security here in the United States, as well as internationally with, with NATO, with the European Union's Human Brain Project, that examined those ways that the brain sciences could be uptaken into various agenda of national security, military purposes, warfare and intelligence, and what that might then mean or infer for the way we approach the brain sciences, govern the brain sciences, regulate the brain sciences, and also what things need to be done in terms of readiness and preparedness. He became an expert in a field that most of us probably can't really fathom neurosecurity, at the cutting edge of how we understand the brain and the ways in which it can be enhanced and attacked. So it's applying security methods to the ways that the brain sciences could be used in various forms of weaponization, intelligence, and national security initiatives, activities, and operations. There is the flip side of that same coin. In other words, understanding the way brains work in individuals and in groups so as to harness the capability of the brain in some way, either through various training techniques, through the use of brain-machine interfacing, to be able to increase the capability of security and intelligence operational optimization capabilities, etc. He'd been called on by the Pentagon to investigate issues where neurosecurity had been compromised. There had been at least three prior examples where there may have been some suspect incidences and, and situations that warranted analysis um, of whether or not a potential neuroweapon had been utilized. And are you able to say whether they had been used previously? Well, I think at least two of them we, we know. One of them is Novichok and the other was of the, the toxin sarin. The other issue suggested that there may have been some form of a biological agent, but it was not necessarily a, a neuroactive agent. You can see why Dr. James Giordano is exactly the kind of guy you'd want on your team if intelligence officers and diplomats were suddenly falling sick. In 2017, James was at a symposium when he was contacted by a colleague at the Department of State. And I asked him if he could remember where he was when he first heard the news about Havana syndrome. And his answer was a rather delightful reminder that in the world of neurosecurity, this was, as yet, pretty small fry. Well, it isn't, isn't exactly like the, the Kennedy as, the, the assassination. Or, but I, I can remember relatively, I was contacted at um, a symposium we were having at the, the National Academies by a colleague from the United States Department of State who said that they have a set of cases that they felt were of, of interest and value in that they believed that they may be representative of some form of engagement. By some form of engagement, he means an attack. And what I was asked to do is to engage a process known as abductive forensics. In other words, look, we don't have a, a smoking gun, so to speak. There's no, quote, entrance wound or an exit wound, but we have a number of individuals who've reported subjective symptoms that fit into a relatively defined pattern. And those individuals were independently and objectively clinically assessed, and they have objective, clinical, definitive pattern of signs. 
And the question then is, well, what could do this based upon my prior experience, my expertise to date, as well as ongoing information being provided about the current technological readiness worldwide of certain forms of neuroscience and technology and if and how they might be utilized in certain ways. It's hard to know when exactly the idea that this might be an attack took hold. Was it after the medical tests failed to return a definite diagnosis? Was it before? But it feels natural, doesn't it? The laws of mystery demand an assailant lurking in the shadows. And very quickly, the story of Havana syndrome had one in the form of a sound. A sound that followed the victims, that was apparently directed at them. A sound that caused injury and misery. After the first cases were reported in February 2017, the chief of the Havana mission, Jeffrey De Laurentiis, went to the presidential palace for a meeting with Raul Castro himself. And the Cuban president assured him, it's not us. But he told them, let us help you solve it. By then, multiple theories were already circulating. The newspaper was speculating that this was uh, some sort of rebel faction of the Cuban security forces that were uh, interested in sabotaging the uh, reapproachment between the United States and, and Cuba. And, uh, and immediately I heard this, I said, this is nonsense. This is Dr. Mitchell Valdez Sosa, the director of the Cuban Center for Neuroscience. Everybody in Cuba was rooting for the uh, re-establishment of closer relations between the U.S. and Cuba. And this, if, that, that, that's absurd. The idea that people in the security apparatus of the Cuban state would be sabotaging that is, uh, was impossible. Anybody knowing the internal politics and the internal situation of Cuba knows this is nonsense. A team of Cuban investigators were called on to investigate the sound. Well, we immediately started asking for collaboration. When the incident started, the uh, U.S. government sent a doctor, Professor Hoffer, from Miami to visit Cuba to look at some of the cases. And he talked uh, a little with some Cuban doctors, the the first Cuban doctors that were uh, mobilized to study this. And uh, a short summary, one-page summary, was placed in, in Cuban hands. But the collaboration... Uh, then disappeared. The Americans were going it alone. Their doctors, Dr. Hoffer and Dr. Smith, had already examined the patients and they'd landed on that vague diagnosis, complex brain network disorder. Dr. Hoffer's study found evidence of an inner ear balance disorder, of unsteadiness and cognitive impairment, while Dr. Smith had concluded that the patients were suffering from persistent symptoms seen in concussion or mild trauma injuries. This wasn't a neurotoxin, they said, like sarin or Novichok, substances which would leave a trace in the blood or on a doorknob or soaked in a towel. And so James Giordano and others began to consider the possibility that this was a device, some kind of new weaponry. Well, you know, I went into it agnostically, as as one should, approaching it scientifically. It's not a question of saying, well, I think this is what we have, but rather there's sort of a null hypothesis. In other words, could this be due to chance? And the way you you engage that abductive forensic process is look at all of the available information data. And I mean all of it, or as very much of it as you can then have at your disposal and access. 
He used a process called abductive forensics. Now, I won't get into the differences between inductive, deductive and abductive reasoning, but basically it's a process that seeks the simplest and most likely conclusion based on the observations available. But it doesn't say, guys, this is definitely it. It leaves room for doubt, instead saying things like this is the best available or most likely conclusion. And that's what James Giordano did. Based upon that level of investigation, the analysis brings together a set of possibilities. And then from those possibilities, utilizing the data available creates probabilities. And from those probabilities presents probabilities with the highest likelihood, given the concurrence of the information available from which those conclusions can be drawn. So the general schema of investigation analytics went along the lines of, could this have been perhaps a drug or a chemical? Yeah, the possibility for that is, is of course, present. What types of chemicals? Well, there are a number of pesticides that could do these types of, could occur these types of effects or a number of industrial solvents and cleaners that could do this. Could this have been an accidental exposure? Could this have been an artifactual exposure? In other words, where pesticides or some form of industrial commercial chemical were being used and these individuals were inadvertently exposed, and as a consequence, this would find possible, absolutely possible. We mitigated that possibility because of a number of different factors. Number one, there would be a broader distribution of individuals who were affected and would be a bit more generalized. Number two, there would have been artifacts and attributes that would have been recoverable from the tissue and fluid samples taken from the individuals at that time. And there would have been some custodial or provenental record of these types of chemicals being used. Ruled out the idea of a a pesticide or an industrial chemical. For the next eight minutes, a glorious and mind-expanding eight minutes, James ran me through all the possibilities he had considered on the drugs theory. But what in the end ruled that option out was that there was no evidence to point to it afterwards. There would have been some level of, of evidence of this process, particularly after the fact. In other words, when you did a little bit more deep of a dig, you'd be able to find, ah, this is what happened. Case in point here, Novichok. So if you think of Novichok at the time, yeah, this was relatively clandestine in the way it was administered. But after the fact, you then see various facts and attributes. And so you're able to get, if you will, a delivery trail. That was not present in the Havana cases. Once he had ruled out a series of biological agents, he turned to the idea that seemed to have taken hold in the media, a sonic device. So the next situation was, well, could it have been some form of a device? Well, what type of a device? Well, could it have been some form of a sonic device, for example, that could be utilized to repel vermin? They're available in a variety of different sizes to repel everything from small mammals all the way up to very large mammals. These are moments when this mystery tips into the absurd. Could a sonic device, an amped up version of the thing that my grandmother recently bought for her kitchen to repel mice, the thing that we joked was a mouse Wi-Fi, could that be behind the symptoms? No, James ruled that out. But he didn't rule out sonic or directed energy. For a number of reasons not least of which is that the technological readiness level of sonic devices that can be used for individual deterrence and or crowd control was patent, was at a point where it was certainly operationalizable, recognize that these things have been researched 
internationally a number of countries for a number of years. And the signs and symptoms, the, the clinical signs and the reported symptoms were highly suggestive of the type of an effect that you would see if an individual was subjected, particularly repeatedly, to some form of directed energy or sonic wave. Now, then the question is, well, what could do this? Two things could do this. First might be some form of a sonic surveillance device. And second might be some form of a sonic disruptive device. And those two things were not thought at that time to be mutually exclusive. The capability of utilizing some form of sonic surveillance device that may have had an artifact that was disruptive, certainly a possibility, if not probability. And or the intentional disruption of these individuals' physiology and therefore downstream their cognitive and motor capabilities is also a possibility, whom probability. Of course, the question of what could cause the sounds that could cause the injuries was also a question of who. Who could do this? Who had the capability? The evidence that this was directed seemed to gather pace throughout 2017 as stranger cases emerged. One, detailed in The New Yorker, was of a senior CIA officer who had flown to Cuba in secret to meet with colleagues there. In her room at the Hotel Nacional in August of 2017, she awoke to a low humming noise and a feeling of intense pressure in her head. She asked a colleague who came to her room if he had heard anything, but he hadn't. It was the final straw, persuading Mike Pompeo, then the CIA director, to shut down the CIA station in Havana, and Rex Tillerson, then the Secretary of State, pulled US diplomats. Then, in October, another diplomat, this time in China, fell sick. A woman who had no idea of what was happening in Cuba. I woke up in the middle of the night, and I could feel this sound in my head. Um, it was in intense pressure on both of my temples. At the same time, I heard this low humming sound, and it was oscillating. And I remember looking around for where this sound was coming from, because it was painful. When did you first notice that you weren't feeling well? October of 2017, I started to get um, hives all over my body, uh, really bad hives. I woke up with headaches every day. Um, I started to feel tired. The simplest things would just make me very, very tired. Were these symptoms growing worse over time? They were, yes. My symptoms would get so bad that I would throw up. A few months later, in the early hours of a December morning, a man called Mark Polymeropoulos, a senior CIA official working in Moscow, complained of nausea, dizziness, and a loud ringing in his ears, leaving, he described later, silent wounds. I was falling over in my room. I thought I was going to vomit. I was incredibly nauseous. I had this incredible ringing in my ears, uh, and I knew something was really wrong with me. I think about all the times in war zones where I'd been shot at or rocketed. Um, this was by far, though, the scariest night of my life. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill? If it's possible, how are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. By June 2018, there had been around 26 documented cases of Americans affected. Dr. James Giordano had briefed the Joint Chiefs of Staff on his analysis. But as the story travelled, the idea of a sonic or acoustic weapon began to be discredited, ridiculed even. And uh, immediately I heard this, I said, this is nonsense. Uh, First, because uh, there's no such thing as sonic weapons that can produce this kind of effect. I mean, there are sonic weapons, but they're very big uh, machines put on on trucks, you know, on on large vehicles, and they're used to disperse multitudes. And there's nothing that can produce this kind of selective damage in specific people uh, uh, under the conditions that were reported for the diplomats. So that was nonsense, obviously. Now, I can't speak about other countries, but I I really find it in the realm of science fiction almost. Who am I to comment on the likelihood of a device like that working? I'm neither a neuroscientist nor a weapons expert. But what I could do was ask somebody who does know. I called a senior counter-terror and security expert here in the UK. They knew about Havana Syndrome, but more importantly, they knew about what kind of threats the UK and the US had faced. And so I asked, is it possible? And they said, rather ominously, look at Russia. They've got a long history of bending the laws of physics to acquire information. There have been times when Western experts have just not been able to understand the maths of what the Russians have been able to do. But crucially, they said, this is not outside the realm of possibility. And so we arrive back in the impossible possible, in the same room, it seems, as the men who stare at goats. According to James and my security source, an attack had been rendered possible. But in a different community of experts, a new theory was growing. A diagnosis that in itself is as fascinating and revealing about geopolitics as an impossible weapon. One rooted in the story of the mystery itself. Hi, just a second. I will. You know, I'm working from home and I am extremely unkempt. You're not going you're not recording any. You're just recording voice. Thank you. This is Suzanne O'Sullivan. So I'm Dr. Suzanne O'Sullivan. I'm a consultant neurologist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery in London. 
I specialize in the care of people with seizures. Suzanne, like everyone in this podcast, everyone except me, specializes in the human brain. And so, of course, she became interested in the events in Havana. I am drawn to media reports of mystery illnesses, to be honest, because I know that the words mystery illness are very often a euphemism for anything to do with psychology, because people really struggle to still talk openly about psychological disorders. So I think I probably read about Havana syndrome sometime around 2018, and which is about a year and a half after it started. She was immediately sceptical of the idea that this was a sonic attack. This then spread around the world so that now there are actually hundreds of people, all of whom are diplomats, some Canadian, some US, who associate the hearing of a loud sound with the constellation of typical symptoms and believe they have been attacked by a sonic weapon. Now, there is, you know, huge problem is that sound doesn't damage the brain. This subterfuge exists. Um, I'm quite sure that I don't know everything the Russian government and the Cuban government get up to or what sort of risks diplomats face. But I do know this, which is that sound does not damage the brain. So this kind of concept of there being an energy weapon directed at individuals, not detected by anyone else, causing brain damage for many biological reasons is impossible. It's compelling because it's quite a nice kind of folk illness story. The concept that because sound goes through your ear, it must have some special way of getting into your brain and damaging it. But that's not actually biologically possible, she said. But she could see how the imagery of that is very compelling. For Suzanne, the diagnosis seems clear. In a new book that she's written called The Sleeping Beauties, she lays out her thesis, and I have to say I could barely put it down when I read it. The cause, she says, is not a weapon, but the brain itself, an example of a mass psychogenic illness, or to use a more outdated term, mass hysteria, where psychosomatic symptoms travel like a virus, a virus that feeds from a story. Then the diplomats in the in the embassy were really put under an enormous amount of strain because they were called to repeated meetings where they were told if they heard any strange noises, hide behind a wall. If they felt sick at all, they should immediately go to their doctor. They were later then even told that even if they didn't feel sick, they should go to a doctor and get checked they hadn't been attacked by a sonic weapon. So if you've got the most senior people in the country telling you you're under attack and you should be frightened and telling you to examine your bodies for symptoms, then I think what happened is not not terribly surprising, is that these symptoms spread very easily from person to person. And they continued to spread despite the enormous weight of evidence against a sonic weapon. Havana syndrome, she says, is a socio-political phenomenon. And remember the time that we're talking about. When Barack Obama announced that the embassy would be reopening in 2015, it was met by considerable fear-mongering by several senior Republicans. The Cuban-American senator for Florida, Marco Rubio, called it a concession to tyranny. By the time that he took office in early 2017, President Donald Trump was threatening to cancel the whole thing. And US intelligence had, at the very beginning of 2017, released conclusions that the Russian government had successfully meddled in the 2016 presidential election. The embassy, Suzanne says, had barely had time to dust off the cobwebs before hostility and suspicions reigned again. And it was just a couple of months later that the first mystery symptoms were reported. So really, it's 
what you're describing is kind of a, a narrative sickness, a sickness that comes from a story. I mean, it's 100%. I just consider these things to be embodied narratives. So you tell yourself a story about your body and then you look for evidence to support that story. And that's not just a feature of mass psychogenic illness or significant psychosomatic illness. That's a feature of our everyday lives. You know, if you get a vaccination and you believe that a vaccination will be painful in a certain way or will cause you to feel sick in a certain way, you may very well experience those symptoms. Fortunately, those kind of everyday things don't usually lead to any sort of disability. But yes, we it's it's the opposite of the placebo effect. You know, the belief that something will do you harm can cause you to experience symptoms consistent with that belief. And I absolutely think that, you know, the solutions to these things may very much lie more with anthropologists and sociologists than they do with medical doctors. In fact, medical doctors seem to do nothing but make things worse in both of those cases because the medical doctors in the States completely and utterly rejected the psychosomatic um, hypothesis and presented the sonic weapon theory as a definite fact and certainly made things worse, in my opinion. Suzanne's perspective has been supported by some of America's leading scientists. A report was recently leaked to BuzzFeed. It dates back to 2018, and it was written by Jason, an elite independent group of scientists who advised the US government on matters like this. The report focused on the sound, and it came to the same conclusion that Dr. Mitchell Valdez Sosa and Dr. Suzanne O'Sullivan had come to, that sound couldn't possibly have caused these injuries. For one thing, people were reporting different kinds of sounds. Some people had talked about a low humming noise, others a high-pitched screech. An analysis of a recording of the sound obtained by the Press Association revealed it wasn't electrical or technological, it was biological. diabolical act of espionage by crickets. That's a cricket. And many people said they heard sounds like a cricket. And there are crickets in Havana. So I think one of the important takeaways is that, yeah, the individuals who were living in Havana heard crickets. Crickets that can do what it did to the individuals who were affected. I would not want to meet on a dark so the idea that it's the crickets that did it, or that's what they heard, and the only thing they heard, is actually fallacious. At some point in 2019, the main attack theory shifted. Dr. James Giordano's theory shifted. What could be the cause? After a year-long investigation, 19 top experts from the National Academies of Sciences conclude the most likely explanation, directed pulse microwave energy. Consistent with the direct- We were not certain in 2017 or early 2018 that the state of the science and technology of microwaves would have allowed that level of scalability and fieldability. However, retrospectively, through 2019 and 2020, it became clear that dedicated programs of microwave research, inclusive of those here in the United States and, and elsewhere, for example, Russia, China, 
were capable of producing microwave devices that could be relatively effectively shielded from the operator, at least during the period of time they were, they were in operation. They were scalable to the point that they would be relatively portable. They were able to utilize a derived power source that based upon the pulsing of the microwave, and it was a rapidly pulsed, utilizing either an electronic pulsing trigger or a laser pulsing trigger, would then not draw off all of the energy that would then necessitate, for example, a very, very large power source, but could then incur some portability of the power source. The fact of who was affected in Havana, their jobs, points to a motive, to disrupt operations and to sow confusion and doubt. This was not a generalized phenomenon. These individuals had many years of experience and professional activity on the job. They were doing a specific job and disrupting these individuals' functionality was indeed disruptive to the job that they were doing, writ small, and on a larger scale was disruptive to the viability of the United States Embassy in Havana, intelligence operations, many of the characteristics of those cases fit and continue to fit a defined pattern. Uh, I'm not at liberty to discuss what that pattern is in terms of who's being targeted or who's coming, who's coming into, into prominence in terms of, of, of actually exhibiting verifiable anomalous health incidences and, and effects that would be attributed this way. If you thought that I was building up to an either-or, that you're either on the side of an attack or on the side of a mass psychogenic illness, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but it could be both. James doesn't rule out the possibility that after an initial attack, the dozens of recent cases could be psychosomatic, which he says could even have been part of the plan. Never underestimate the power of just creating more paperwork. But please understand, there have also been dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of cases that have been examined that could not be verified. And that's important to understand. I mean, this is not that each and every case that comes to the fore represents, well, this is, quote, this thing called Havana syndrome. Is there a psychogenic effect that's very, very operative in, in the current milieu? Yes, absolutely there is. Are there and do there continue to be other cases that fall very, very squarely within those objective criteria that would allow them to be verified at this point as viable Havana syndrome-like cases? Yes, there are. Is there some working idea of what type of device might be responsible or could be responsible for doing this? Yes. As I said, I mean, at this point, the possibilities and probabilities include some form of directable acoustic and sonic device and or a microwave device coupled with some form of laser component. These things are not mutually exclusive. They can be one or the other, one and the other in some combination. Is there a a general feeling that there continues to be some relative improvement or iterative sophistication of the devices themselves or their methods and means of delivery? Yes, perhaps. It could be all of it, is what he's saying. But one thing he is absolutely certain of, a rare moment of surety in a realm of seemingly infinite possibilities and probabilities, is that the original cases were not psychogenic. There are are numbers of lines of evidence that were brought together that debunked that. I'm not at liberty to discuss that. So where does all of this leave us? 
well, probably not that far from where we started. Still in the thick of a mystery, but one that perhaps is no longer set in a crumbling Havana embassy beset by sonic weapons, but in a paranoid hall of mirrors. In the end, there are, I think, two mirrored doors that perhaps offer the quickest route to a conclusion. The first is in the idea of pride. If you understand a psychosomatic illness to be a matter of fakery or fragility, you would see why an organization like the CIA just couldn't countenance it. James Giordano himself said to me, this cannot be faked. But is it a case of fakery? If the brain believes something, believes it is under attack, as many in Havana were told to prepare themselves to be, that the brain can create symptoms of an attack. Curious, diverse, shape-shifting symptoms that can spread from person to person. Symptoms that are measurable, observable, that can be totally debilitating, but in the end, not attributable to any clear pathology or attack. But it's a difficult explanation for the CIA to give. Far easier and more fitting to find an attacker, as Marco Rubio and Rex Tillerson and Donald Trump did. But then there is another mirrored door, one behind which lies a sophisticated weapon that it's possible that many of us simply can't even imagine, one that bends the laws of maths. In July, President Joe Biden set up a new Havana Syndrome task force to try and find it. It's led by a veteran officer who helped find Osama bin Laden. I suppose, on the logic, that if there's a bad guy to be found, he's the man to do it. And in September, the House of Representatives unanimously passed a bill called the Havana Act, which will compensate victims of the syndrome. Mark Lenzi, a security engineering officer who worked in China and suffered from Havana syndrome, said that this legislation was crucial for those of us injured in the line of duty. It's a mystery beyond our wildest dreams, and it might be a story more powerful than we realize. And I'm left not yet sure which of the doors I'm pushing on. Thank you for listening. This episode was written by me and produced by Matt Russell. And can I ask you to do something for me? If you like this show and what we're doing every week, then do tell your friends, your family, your colleagues. Give us a five-star review. It really helps our stories travel. And of course, that matters to us because we think that they're stories worth hearing. And if you, our beloved listeners, want to get more involved in what we do or get early ad-free access to our podcasts, then you can join us and get the Tortoise app. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use my code BASHA50, that's B-A-S-I-A-5-0, for a special discounted price. Thank you and see you next week. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. How do you solve a crime in reverse? 
when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.